you guys have your journals, the spot that we're in, the spot that Drew was reading out of is on page 12. But before we continue, I want us to take a a moment to pray together. Um, And I want to mix things up a little bit this morning. We've already kind of done that in a bunch of different ways, but I want to do it a little bit more. um, Because at the end of this prayer, I want us to, to take a moment to pray the Lord's Prayer together. Okay? We'll throw it up on the screen so you guys can follow along as we pray, um, but, but I want to pray, and then as we get to the end, we'll pray the Lord's Prayer together. Cool? Let's pray. Lord, this morning, as we read this text, we celebrate Christmas again. We celebrate your first coming. This passage is, isn't just for us during Advent. Lord, we thank you this morning for another chance to celebrate the reality that you came, the, the wonder of how you came. And even though this text focuses on how you worked in the life of Joseph to bring your son into the world, today on Mother's Day, we also rejoice as Mary did years ago, and your word records in the first chapter of Luke, we rejoice that you have sent Jesus to save us from our sins. You have sent your son and our Lord Jesus Christ to rescue us, and so we come before you this day as humble servants like Mary, that we might magnify your holy name, praising you, our King. Like we read about last week and we see again this week, you are the God who keeps his promises. You fulfilled your promise to Abraham and your people in the person of Jesus, and we praise you for your faithfulness. But Lord, even today, we also plead with you. We plead with you for those who might be struggling this morning with that same faithfulness, filled with sadness on Mother's Day for mothers that they've lost, grandmothers that they no longer have even dreams of being a mother that have gone unfulfilled. This morning, Lord, would you meet them in their sadness and in their grief with your comfort and with your faithfulness. Lord, we even pray this morning for those mothers who are struggling under the expectations and pressures of motherhood. Would you free them from the weight of guilt and condemnation and empower them by your spirit to carry their responsibilities with joy and trust in you as they continue to love and serve their children and their families. Lord, it's it's that that joy that we pray out of this morning, rejoicing because of the reality that you had a mother and what that means. You became one of us. And so in joy, we continue to pray like your mother prayed in Luke 1, praising you, mighty God, because you are a God who scatters the proud and brings down the mighty from their thrones. You are a God who lifts up the humble. And so, Lord, today we come in humility before you poor in spirit, recognizing our need for the riches of mercy that Christ alone can provide. Would you forgive us our sins against you and our sins against others? Would you clean our hands and hearts from our sin and our rebellion? Would you wash us clean in the blood of Jesus? Gracious provider, you are the Lord who fills the hungry with good things. Who sends the rich away empty like Mary prayed. You are the God of provision, protection, and promise for your people. The word also reveals that you are a judge to all who oppose your ways. And so, Lord, like your word teaches us to pray, we ask that you would judge the wicked and make what's wrong right again. That you might send your son again soon to judge the living and the dead, to bring on earth this eternal kingdom of righteousness and peace. But, Lord, even as we pray that, in the meantime, as your people living between the first and second comings of Christ, we ask that you would please draw more people to yourself by your spirit. Would you save them like you saved us? And so this morning, we pray in the way that your son taught us to pray, saying these words, Our Father 
in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. As we get started, I want to ask you something. I've been doing this lately, so I like to start with a question. How, how much wonder do you have in your life? Might be a weird question. I don't mean wonder like I, I wonder what's for dinner, or I, I wonder when I'm going to hear back about that job, but I mean real wonder. Like the, the kind of wonder that imagines worlds that are beyond our own and sees past what we see to what is unseen, what is sometimes more real than what we can taste or touch. But what is there only for people who have eyes to see and ears to hear? Wonder. It's kind of hard to describe what I mean, but it's, it's, it's kind of like the feeling you get when you're sitting under the stars for the first time. And, and, and I mean under the real stars, right? Not, not, not these city stars that we have out here, but like in the middle of nowhere kind of stars. Realizing that there are way more stars than you thought were even possible. This is what's tricky about wonder. It's a lot like those stars, right? The more lights... The more distractions, the more worries, fears, and anxieties, the harder it is to wonder. We get so used to seeing only a few stars in the sky that we start to believe that these are all that there are. And so this morning, we step into a Christmas passage, a passage that we might be so used to that we wonder why we would spend any time in them at all. Just move on, preacher. We know this story. But our text this morning is a text that we often move so quickly past that we have little time to wonder at the coming of the king at what happened when he came, at the clash of kingdoms that he brings. But just like we talked about last week, when we stop and we slow down in this passage and we spend time looking for what the word of God is trying to communicate in these verses, what we'll find might surprise us. And so this morning, we continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew that's entitled The King and His Kingdom, and we step into the birth story of Jesus to see the kind of king that he is, the kind of kingdom that he's bringing, the kind of people that he calls his own that call this kingdom home. And so here's how I want us to walk through this passage, through this story, this text today. There are mile markers that I want us to pay attention to as we walk by them. And by the time we reach our destination at the end of this sermon, my prayer is that these, these four mile markers would lead you not only to wonder, but to worship. So here they are. Here are the four mile markers that I want to put in our text today. Two fathers, two names, two kingdoms, and two choices. As we walk through the story, I want to show you the kind of king who has two fathers, the king who has two names, the two kingdoms that start a war together, and the two choices that are set before us by the coming of this king. Two fathers, two names, two kingdoms, two choices. So let's start walking, step into the text. I want to look for mile marker one, two fathers. We start our text in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, he, he had in his mind, he considered, he thought of a plan to divorce her quietly. But even after he was considering this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said these words to him, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Let me take you back to last week where we read through the family line of Jesus. 
a family line that was filled with scandal and sin and faithfulness and hope, a family line that was filled with sinners like us for sinners like us. Now, what I did not point out at the end of that sermon was what happens in the final verses at the end of that text. Whose family tree was, were we tracing? Jesus is, yes, but, but who's right before Jesus? The text actually points us to Joseph, Jesus' human father. But before it was Joseph's tree, what I talked about last week is that it was God's tree all along. From the very beginning, God had been at work interweaving lives and people to form this tree for this very moment. It is his hand that is at work, his sovereignty that's on full display in a family tree that Joseph did not pick to be born into. God's hand was at work, not just in forming this family, but in our text we see in continuing this family. The text explains that he is the one who brings about the conception of Jesus. The father sends the son into the world by the Spirit, causing a virgin to conceive. Matthew is pretty clear in this text. She, Mary, is pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they consummate the marriage, giving themselves to each other, she is found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Not just pregnant, but pregnant by means of, because of, thanks to the Holy Spirit which means we know that the story is about to become a tense one, right? Because from a human perspective, everything in the story already looks like it's going sideways. She's not married yet, but she's pregnant. But from a divine perspective, a perspective of wonder, Mary has become a mama because God made it so. This is God's sovereign mission at work. But I'd be lying if it wasn't a surprise. Joseph is surprised, but God in his mercy does not leave Joseph in the dark. He sends him an angel in a dream, cluing Joseph into what a Mary already knows. The one growing in her belly is not the son of another man, but the son sent by the Father through the Spirit. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus is the son of God before he is the son of Joseph. Why am I stopping here? Why am I saying this over and over again? Why am I stopping at this first mile marker and and focusing on these, these fathers of Jesus? Because if we miss this here in this text, at the very beginning of this gospel, it's kind of like flying a plane, but getting our destination off by two degrees at the very beginning. Because two degrees at the very beginning means miles off of our target later. If we miss it here, we will miss it throughout the whole gospel, what Jesus is doing, who he is, what he's about. Getting this wrong here distorts the rest of our gospel because Jesus is not just a special human. He is divine. He is the Son of God, 100% God and 100% human. He doesn't become any less God by being born. One of the creeds of the early church explains it like this. It says, he is truly God and truly man, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, just in case you missed it. God has not just sent a messenger, he has sent his son, his only son, who took on human flesh and became the God-man. His first father then gave him a second father. Let me show you what I mean. Look at the text. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Jesus was born to a woman named Mary. A woman pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. So I want to give you a little cultural background here if you haven't heard this before. Uh, uh, when, when someone is being pledged to be married in this culture, it is describing the second step in a three-step process towards marriage. 
The first step is what they would call engagement. It happens when you're probably a little kid toddling around and your parents arrange a marriage between this person and that person. It's a lot more official in those days. I, know, I don't know if you parents are like looking at a kid in the classroom like, that might be good for my daughter, like trying to set up friendships and play dates. This is more official. It's an arranged marriage, but it's not legally binding. If at some point they decide, like, hey, this isn't going to work out, I, I don't want to do this, they can break that off. But if they decide to move forward, they go to the second step, which is betrothal or, or, or being pledged to be married. Now, we might think that this is like our engagement. I give you a ring, I promise I'm going to marry you, but like, if things still don't work out, if something comes up, we might still break this off. That's not what's happening in this culture. In this second step, it is legally binding. We are married. It's why, in just a few verses, Joseph is called her husband, even though it also, just a few verses before, said she was pledged to be married. In this second step, they are legally married, even if they are not living together yet. This process takes about a year. They, they, they prepare for marriage. They do a lot of different things. And then at the end, they have a celebration, and they, they actually start living together, start their family together. But in this moment, Mary and Joseph are legally married. And so when she is found out to be pregnant, even though she knew, and you and I as good readers know, that it's from the Holy Spirit, on the outside looking in, it does not look like the holy moment that it is. It looks like the consequences of sin. I mean, Joseph knows it's not his because he knows they haven't been together. I haven't touched her. But everyone around them doesn't know that. Both of their reputations are at stake in this moment. And this is why the human father, unaware of the divine father of the child growing in his wife's belly, has a choice to make. The text explains it like this. Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, but he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. So now we're introduced a little bit more fully. Mary, who is pledged to Joseph, pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and now Joseph, who is pledged to Mary and faithful to the law, and they are in a bind, to say the least. We don't read Mary's response here in Matthew. The Gospel of Luke, like we prayed earlier, records it. And even as an aside, I, I recommend you read that. Take some time to read that even here on Mother's Day, a day that we usually set aside to, to celebrate mothers and even meditate on what motherhood looks like. I, I encourage you to read the first two chapters of Luke and read the way that the mother of Jesus prayed. Not because she's holier than, the, than us, but because God has highlighted her for us as an incredible example of faithfulness to him as well as to her calling to be a mother. But Matthew, on the other hand, tells us the story from a different perspective, from the perspective of Joseph, a man faithful to the law, which means he knows what the law says in this situation. You see, Joseph has three options here, as you might consider it. The first is to have her stoned. The second is to publicly divorce her. And the third is to privately divorce her. The law makes room for all three of those options. But because he is both just, faithful to the law, and compassionate, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He chooses the third option. He follows the letter and the spirit of the law, which is more than what can be said about the people of God around this time. It is a law of righteousness and grace, of justice and mercy, of conviction and compassion. He shows us what it means to follow the God who is both just and compassionate, who will punish and also have mercy. And they're never in conflict. But I'll say this from the beginning, that obedience is not easy. It's not, I, don't, I don't really care how godly you are. If, you, uh, if your wife comes to you and she starts showing and you know it's not yours, 
There's a lot of things that go in your head and your heart in that moment. Matthew doesn't describe all the emotional turmoil, doesn't explain all the different things that are happening inside of him, but Joseph's actions here are not simple, uncomplicated, or emotionless. What Matthew wants us to see is that despite all of that, this godly man did what God required of him in Micah 6.8, to act justly and love mercy, to walk humbly before God. But then God required something different of him, something that was, I think, actually even more difficult for him. The next verse explains, after he had considered this, after he was thinking about his plan, an angel of the Lord shows up and, and in a dream explains to him, look, look Joseph, son of David, I don't, I don't want you to be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. I want you to fear for your reputation or for hers. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. An angel of God shows up, and when an angel of God shows up, you should probably listen. And Jesus Remember, his, his first father is not human, he's divine. And so the, the divine father intervenes and calls this human father to what I would consider a difficult obedience. See, Joseph was following what he knew of God and his law, but now God is intervening to reveal something to this human father, this son of David. Did you catch that when the angel's talking to Joseph? He, he calls him son of David. Now, I don't know if you remember all the names from last week. I would be really impressed if you had memorized that entire genealogy we talked about last week. But if you look at that genealogy, Joseph's dad is not named David. So why is the angel doing this? Why is the angel calling him son of David? Because like Jesus, Joseph is marked by his family tree and he is royalty. He is a son of David. I don't know if you see this, but this is kind of a big deal because Joseph is the only other person in this gospel named son of David besides Jesus. No one else gets this title. There's something that's happening in this moment as this angel is speaking to Joseph, reminding him who he is, setting him up for the one to come, cluing us into what's about to happen. Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Take Mary as your wife. What is Joseph really being asked to do? He's not just being asked to continue the marriage. He's also asking, being asked to adopt the child that this woman is about to bear. Did you know that Jesus is adopted? Like, J Jesus has no biological father. Joseph adopts Jesus as his son. Do you know what that means? That as this human father adopts him and makes him his, he gives Jesus the rightful claim to the throne of David through this family line. He fulfills God's, he helps fulfill God's promise to David. But, but even more than that, Joseph, this, this human father by the hand of God, the divine father, directed by the spirit of God, makes legal what is already inherent, what is already built in, what is already fundamental to who Jesus is because he is a king being born, a king in the line of David. But even more than that, he is a king of kings. His divine father is at work weaving all of these strands together. And his human father is at work being faithful to God, just and compassionate. Right? If you follow the, the text, look at jo Joseph responds. Right? The, the early church called Joseph quiet Joseph because we don't actually have any recordings of how he spoke. He didn't really speak in any, but, but he acts and his actions speak way louder than words. Because immediately Joseph wakes up and he does what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He takes Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until Jesus is born. Why? So that there's no mistake that Joseph is Jesus' adoptive father. This is the son of God. 
This is not a mere human. He is the God-man. Two fathers, one divine, one human. A God who has sovereign hand is at work sending the son, intervening to bring the birth of the son about, not, to, not in a palace or to a wealthy family, but in a small town to a poor family whose royalty is, for now, in name only. But this name matters, son of David. Almost as much as the two other names I want to show you on our next mile marker. Because these two names don't just name Jesus, they actually anticipate his mission, why he came, what he will do. So first mile marker is the two fathers, human, divine, God, man. The second mile marker I want you to pay attention to in this text is the two names that Jesus is given in particular by God. Look at verse 21. In the middle of Joseph's dream, the angel is telling him, listen, Mary's about to give birth to a son, and this is the name you're supposed to give him, Jesus. Why? Because he will give He will save his people from their sins. Joseph is given the task of naming his adopted son, but he is not given a, shall we say, creative license. He's he's not allowed to just pick whatever name he likes. Have you ever tried to name someone? It's like really hard. My wife Jocelyn and I, we, we really struggled to name our girls. I mean, we had list after list after list with a bunch of crossed out names. And what made it worse is that Jocelyn used to be a teacher. And, and for any of you teachers out there, you know that there's a lot of names that can bring up a lot of different ideas about, let's say, obedience, obedience challenged children. We wanted the name to mean something. So we're looking up the, the, the meanings behind these names. We wanted the name to be unique. We wanted them to reflect their multicultural heritage. Because I'm Latino and my wife is not. And we wanted to... They are bicultural children, and we wanted their names to communicate that. We even tested initials. I don't know if you ever did that. Like, if it's going to make up a funny word, I don't want that name. We try to ask how creative you need to be as a child to be mean with this name, and can I make it really hard for the bullies? We prayed. What do we want for these girls? What are we praying over them and for them? With one of our girls, we actually left. We actually came to the hospital with one name and left with another name that we picked minutes before she was born. I will not tell you who. She might listen to this someday. Names are difficult because names are important. They matter. They say something about someone. Thankfully, Joseph and Mary didn't have to put together a bunch of lists with crossed out. They, yes and no names that are allowed. The name was given to Joseph because it was important enough to God to communicate in the name of his son who he is and what he's about to do. Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua, which I told you last week means God saves. Why is this his name? Because the text says he will save his people from their sins. He will save. Not from external Roman oppression or from internal Jewish arguments about who's right and who's wrong, but from sin, from their sin. He will save Who? His people. Well, then the natural question is, who are his people? Right? Many of us read this, and immediately we think of Israel. We think of the Jewish people, which which isn't entirely wrong, but, but might I suggest, as we read this passage, that the longer we linger in this story, and the more we wonder, the clearer the picture becomes that those who think are we think are his people are not, and that those we think are not his people are. You see, his people are not defined by mere DNA. Just look at the family tree. There's both Jewish and non-Jewish alike in that tree. No, Jesus' people are identified not by family tree, but by faithfulness to him. 
like Joseph, like Mary, and like a couple of wise guys we'll encounter in our next chapter. A couple of non-Jewish magi. He will save his people from their sins. Those who know that they are in need of saving. Those who come to him for forgiveness. And how will he do that? How will he live into this name? Might I suggest it's because of his second name. His first name tells us what he will do. His second name tells us who he is. Look at the next verse, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The God who became human to be with us. God on earth, God in the flesh, eyes, ears, and elbows, right? Brain and a bladder in his body. Right? Lungs to breathe, a stomach to eat, feet to walk on, and hands to make with. God with us, not as just some fantastic ghost or dazzling angel, but, but like normal like us. Like, like he got dirty in the dirt like us. The God man who needs to sleep, who loves to laugh, who wants to know your name. The God man who did not stay away but came to us to save us. He is Jesus because he is Emmanuel. He is Emmanuel in order to be Jesus, God with us in order to save us. This is the promised one, the one who came by a virgin, who came by a miracle to us in order to be a miracle for us, a miracle of salvation. You see, the miracle of the incarnation, the the and fleshing, the, the, the entrance of the Son of God into the world that he created as one of the creatures that he created is an epic miracle that we describe in human terms. Jesus and Emmanuel. God saves and God with us. God with us in order to save us. This is the wonder of the incarnation that God became like us. His two names and his two fathers do more than describe him. They are meant to leave us with who is this king? Who, who is this child? Who is this Messiah? He is both human and divine. He is Jesus and Emmanuel. He is the God-man who came to save his people from their sins by being with us. And it is wonder-filled. Full of the, the wonder of grace that God would come to us, would become like us in order to save us? Behold your king. But beware the kingdom that he brings. Because though it is full of wonder, it is also full of war. Not the war you might be thinking of, though. I want to keep walking through the story and step into chapter 2 and look for the third mile marker, the, the two kingdoms, right? We looked at the two fathers, we examined the two names, but I want to approach this third mile marker where scandal and hope turn into the conflict as kingdoms clash and war is waged. Just not the kind of war you might be expecting. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. After this happens, Magi from the east, they come to Jerusalem and they're asking around to anybody who they can run into. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've, we've come to worship him. The rumors swirl and they make their way all the way up to the palace. So when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. You see, the scene in our uh, our text shifts from the holy family to the holy city, from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. As, as character after character starts to fill this scene, Jesus is born, the text says, but not just anywhere. He is born in Bethlehem in Judea, which, which should make our ears perk up. 
Because he's not just born anywhere, he's born in the city of David, a city of kings. The God-man is born in the royal town of Bethlehem where David had been born. But just as important as where he is born is when he is born, which is why the text says he was born during the time of King Herod. A king who, if you don't know, reigns in the capital city of God's people under the iron fist of and with the approval and blessing of Roman oppressors. A king who, uh, history says, killed every single person of the previous dynasty before he got into power. A, a, a king who ordered the assassination of any religious leader who opposed him, eventually killing up to half of the leaders that were there. A king whose paranoia at the end of his life led him to kill his mother-in-law, one of his wives, and three of his kids. A king whose insecurity ran so deep that when he was about to die, he arranged for all the important men in Jerusalem to be gathered in the same place and killed as soon as he died so that the people in Jerusalem would weep instead of rejoice at his death. A king whose building projects were impressive and impressed even his enemies, but made more enemies than friends and, and was considered by most to be a usurper to the throne. And a king that's in power and name, but not in truth. This is why the report of these magi disturbed not just Herod, but the whole city. Because when everybody knew what happened when Herod got nervous, heads would roll and blood would be spilled. Herod is nervous because maybe, maybe he missed one of those people from the previous dynasty. Maybe there was someone with a legitimate right to the throne. Maybe there was someone that was just out to get him and take his throne. And it is in this way that the clash of kingdoms begins with the question, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? Who's asking? Well, the text describes them. Magi from the east. It explains why they came. They've been watching the stars, reading the signs. Who are they? Um, I, I grew up in Miami, Florida. I've told you guys this before. While I was walking in Miami, it wasn't unusual to find pots that were filled with chicken bones by walking paths and in backyards. It wasn't unusual for a lot of chickens to be roaming the neighborhood, more chickens than you would think for people that were raising them. It wasn't unusual to see people walking up the sidewalk in all white from head to toe. You see, all of these are classic signs of Santeria, a religion that mixed theologies from Catholicism and, and African religions in Cuba and eventually made its way to the Florida coast. No, the signs of sorcery weren't everywhere for me, but, but they still mark my memories with, with fear because every time I saw one of those santeros, those priests, they always carried with them something that felt like, like magic, like dark magic, like something I didn't quite fully understand. These men walk into Jerusalem, and this is the atmosphere, the cloud, the shadows that follow them into the place. Because you see, this is a group of unholy men walking into a holy city. Magi were priests who dabbled in dreams and astrology and from whose name we get the word magic. One Jewish rabbi shortly before Jesus was born says this about them. He says, he who learns from a magist is worthy of death. They were not to be fooled with. They were not to be listened to. The Old Testament actually has prohibitions against this kind of spirituality. What I'm saying in less words is that these men are spiritually unclean. They have looked for power and answers and stars and signs and are looking now for someone that the signs are pointing to. Their journey is hundreds of miles across harsh terrain for years, away from their community, away from their families for years. Why? 
Why did they do this? Because something led them. I'll rephrase. Someone drew them. And here they are to worship. Naturally, these men, they go to the capital where kings are born, and they ask about the king who was supposed to have been born, but their, their innocent and, and curious questioning stirs up more than curiosity and, and feel anything but innocent because the kingdom currently in power is a paranoid kingdom. Look at the text. Herod calls together all the chief priests and teachers of the law. He asked them where the Messiah was to be born, and they reply, in Bethlehem and Judea. This is what the prophet has written. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Do you get what's happening here? Herod is gathering the experts and looking for answers. He is disturbed, but he is also investigating. And he asks them. He asks for the expected, uh, anticipated, prophesied birthplace of the Messiah. Herod is connecting the dots, you see. The one born king, the, the, the promised one these Gentiles are seeking, has to be some kind of Messiah that these people of God have been talking about. The problem is this, this king of Jerusalem doesn't know his Bible well enough, so he has to ask people who know it back to front. And so he gathers them. He, he gathers these people who don't even have to go looking in the ancient scrolls to answer his question. It just comes right to mind, and he, he, they explain to him, well, we know where he'll be born, Bethlehem. The prophet Micah explains that a ruler who will shepherd his people will come from Bethlehem. In that moment, the ruler of the city colludes with those who should be shepherds of the people of Israel to lead them, to lead him to assassinate, exterminate the true ruler and shepherd of Israel. I, I, these leaders are not ignorant. You know that, right? Like, like they know who's asking. They know what he's asking. And if they know Herod at all, they know why he's asking. And whether it's from fear or envy, they have no problem answering. No problem aligning themselves with an illegitimate king against the true king. And so the war continues to build as the scene plays out. Verse 7, Herod calls a secret meeting with the Magi. He tries to figure out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. And then he sends him to Bethlehem. He says, go, 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 go. I, I search carefully for the child. I, I, I really want you to find him. And as soon as you do, I, I want you to tell me, report to me. I, I want to be able to go and I want to be able to, 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 to worship him, you know? As the Magi are making their way around Jerusalem, these rumors are following them. They're invited to the palace. It makes its way to them, this secret meeting where they, they do not find a newborn king. They're greeted by a suspicious king, a scheming and clever king who, who calls them in secretly so that people don't know that he's worried. And starts making calculations so that he will use them later with, with unimaginable cruelty, we'll find out. He tries to enlist them into his kingdom of power with a request that looks super innocent, but surrounded by secrecy is anything but innocent. Go. And you know what? Let, let me know when you find him so I can go to war. I mean, I mean, go to worship him. Kingdom number one shows its cards. It's tried to conceive them, but, but envy and hostility are really hard to hide. But the Messiah is not. Right? He's right there in Bethlehem. And yet, the only people that leave Jerusalem to find the king of the Jews is a group of non-Jews led there by God through a star. The scene develops in verse 9. Look at the text. After they had heard their king, they, being the Magi, they went on their way. The star they had seen when it rose, it went ahead of them 
And then it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw it, they were, they were overjoyed, filled with joy, erupting from them. And coming to the house, they see the child with his mother Mary, and immediately they bow down and they worship him. They open their treasures. They give him gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. And then they're also warned in a dream not to go back the way they came. So they return to the country another way. Look at the joy that characterizes this scene. The star confirms the path that they're on, and it doesn't fill them with the dread that it fills Herod. It fills them with joy, the joy of worship. And when they find the house, they see the king, they worship, they bow down, they worship him as he deserves with gifts that are appropriate for a king, gifts that are more appropriate than even they could even understand. Because gold and frankincense, they're, they're expensive things, they're things fit for a king, but, but myrrh, myrrh smells like burial. You see, myrrh is a perfume that was used to prepare and, and, and perfume dead bodies before their burial. It points us to, even in this text, the, the eventual death and burial of this newborn king. It's more than they even understand. But if we know the story, we know where this is going. In this scene, the people Jesus came to save, the people Emmanuel came to be with, gather under the same roof without full understanding of what's going on, but if enough understanding to obey God. Jewish Joseph and Mary, Gentile, non-Jewish Magi, poor, wealthy, spiritually clean and unclean, all of them faithful to the God who led them here for this moment as kingdoms begin to clash and two very different kinds of kings go to war in a very different kind of war. You see, Christmas is not just some happy miracle where, where, where Jesus was born, where the Son of God came into this earth. It is a, a declaration of war. Right? It is an invasion and the confrontation of a, of a paranoid enemy, an indifferent people, a city that won't know what hit them until Jesus walks into it three decades later. But for now, on this day in this text, there are two kingdoms that are set before us. And familia, as we read this text, we have to choose. You see, the first is a kingdom that's marked by and ruled with fear. It's, it's, it's filled with cruelty. It's grasping for power. It, it holds on to a throne with a death grip that will eventually be the death of all who seek power according to this kingdom's way of life. Herod and the chief leaders and, and, and even the people in the city who stay put but are, are trapped in and pursuing a kingdom that will not last, a life that leads to destruction. This is the kingdom set before us through the name Herod. But there is another kingdom, a kingdom of faith that comes for anyone who believes. Anyone who believes God when he says, this is my son who came to save his people. Anyone who calls him Lord and Savior, save his people from their sins. The one who came to be with us. The gospel of grace sits right at the surface of this story. As the one named God saves and God with us, the God man himself invades this world in order to save this world. Even if this world would hate him. See, John 1 explains that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But to everyone who did receive him, any who received him, he gave them the right to become children of God. This is the good news of Jesus. He came not to condemn the world, but to save it. He was born to live faithfully without sin and die innocently for our sin and came back to life victoriously that we might be saved and live with him and for him forever. Let me tell you the truth. You and I, apart from God, we operate according to the principles of the kingdom of this world. We've been affected by and we participate in the sin that has distorted God's good creation. We are, we are both victims and victimizers. 
We are both those who are broken and those who break. Titus says it even more starkly. He says we are those that are hated and hate one another. But the good news is that it is for us that he came. For us that he was born, lived, died, was buried, and rose from the grave. And here at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, he preaches the good news of Jesus and lays before us two choices. Remember in their story, Herod was disturbed, all Jerusalem with him. He was shaken to the core. Jerusalem felt the ripple effects of his, his suspicions, his anger, his frustration. And our first choice, the first choice that this text says, sets before us is, is war. Go to war with the true king. Be actively hostile towards him. Fight against him and get rid of anything that resembles him. Rebel against his ways and how we want to live. Live that way. According to our rules, to our kingdom, to our own way of life. And such were some of you, our text tells us in 1 Corinthians 6. We are all like this. Even those of us who love Jesus now. This is what we all used to be. We were all at war against the king. It's something that leads Herod to start scheming, right? He calls the, the Magi secretly and asks them to report back what they find to be his spies, not to help him actually worship Jesus, but as we'll find out next week, to continue his war against the king of the universe, the king of all kings, as if he could win. Herod is an active war, like some of us used to be. But there are other ways to wage war. There's a way to war that some of us who believe are still waging against God. Look at the text. I want you to see the characters who might not be waging active war quite yet against the king, but in their own way are already at war. Verse 4 explains it like this. Herod calls them together, all the chief, people's chief priests and teachers of the law. He, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And, I, and again, like I say, I'm not entirely sure why these leaders answer Herod. Right? Maybe they're scared to death, so they give him what he wants. Or maybe, maybe they think it's not really a big deal. Right? They've, they've heard enough false claims of a Messiah that it feels like a, like a false alarm, maybe. Have you ever had a false, false alarm at, at your house? Or like at school or at a conference? Right? False alarms are dangerous not because they are false, but because they start to make you think that every alarm is false. Eventually, you stop listening to the alarm. One day, there will actually be danger. This is that day for these leaders. And yet, whether from fear or a false alarm, they do not lift a sandal to examine what they've just told this paranoid king. No one tags along with the magi. There are no uh, investigative special groups dispatched from rabbi headquarters. Their apathy continues the war that their souls have been waging against their God. No, their war may not be active like Herod's, but it is just as dangerous because apathy and indifference kills faith quietly. Is that the war you've gone back to waging, Familia? Quicker on the draw to answer a Bible question whenever anybody asks than actually loving Jesus and growing together with Jesus. Some of us are so indifferent to Jesus that if, I, if someone told us right now that he was in Aurora, we would think twice about going to see him. Saying things like, I, I just, I'm kind of busy today. I made some plans. No, I'm not really feeling it. Familia, active war is not the only way we rebel against the king of the universe, the king of kings. Apathy is far more common and way more deadly. Today it confronts us out of this passage. In the face of these religious leaders, have we become apathetic to the God who saves us, who called us his own, cold to the love of Jesus, indifferent to the life he has called us into, 
I'm saying it like this because I got to tell you, this text pierced my heart this week looking at these leaders. I pray that this, this text might stir your heart with the gospel, not of condemnation, but of wonder-filled grace, worshipful grace, like the magi who demonstrate that there is another way, another choice. The first choice might be war, and it looks all kinds of different ways, but the magi show that the second choice is worship. Because magi from the east, they came to Jerusalem, and they explained that we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. They leave and immediately see the star confirming what they've been looking for, and they get overjoyed. They see the child with his mother Mary, and they bow down, worship him, give him gifts, expensive gifts. But really, the call out of this text is, will we worship the king? Have we let him melt our war, our hostility, our indifference into the joy of worship? Who, who worships Jesus in this story? It's not who you would think, right? right? It's not the king in Jerusalem where the temple gleams with all its gold. It's not the, the religious leaders who know their Bibles back to front. It's not even the Jewish people in Jerusalem who are trembling under the cruel reign of a king and should have known better, know that he's coming. No, it is Gentiles, non-Jewish people, not God's people who bow before the king of kings. One of my new favorite preachers, J.C. Ryle, is a guy from the 19th century. He said this of these uh, surprising sorcerers. He says, we read of no greater faith than this in the whole volume of the Bible. And you might be like, that's like preacher exaggeration, bro. No, think about it for a minute. Think about what it took to bring them to this moment face down on the ground. The, the years of travel, the miles that are on their sandals, the faith it would take to travel that far for that long for the king of another country? I mean, I'm curious, but I'm not that curious. Why did they do this? Because someone beyond their understanding, beyond all their magic, astrology, and calculations combined, drew them to this small town outside of another country's capital to meet not just any king, but the king as I close this morning, Familia, I want you to see the two choices that are set before us today, war or worship. And I'll be really honest with you. I, I will not sugarcoat. Neither of those choices is actually easy, right? War leads to death, but, but so does worship. The difference is that war leads to death apart from the God who made us, who loves us, and worship leads to death for the sin that is killing us, the rebellion that is destroying us. Worship leads us to entrusting ourselves to the God who, who made us and raised Jesus back from the dead. Think about the scene in our text. A child that's conceived outside of marriage, a, a, a new couple that's trusting in dreams and angels, magi that are shrouded in darkness, led by the light of a star to the light of the world a city in the shadows of a cruel king. But light is dawning. A new king has come. This text doesn't ask questions like, who is this king, or why is he here, or how did he arrive? It doesn't ask them. It actually answers those questions for us. But it does pose one question to us as we examine this text. How will you respond to the king of kings? Would you continue your pointless war or bow before him in worship? There is no third option. And yet, even as I say that, let me remind you that this king of kings is not like the kings of this world. He wins our allegiance not by power or fear, but by humility and sacrifice, death on a cross. This is the good news of Jesus. He's not just the right king to worship. 
He is the king worthy of worship because he is the only truly good king to worship. Moses says this in Deuteronomy 30. He says, I set before you life and death. Choose life. And that's what this text is telling us to do this morning. Choose life, familia. The only kind of life there is, life in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're wondering what in the world that means, I've got a bunch of questions. I would love to talk to you. Anybody who's been serving up here at the door, we would love to talk to you and answer those questions. Or even if we've been worshiping and you've been like, you know what, like, I don't know why I'm here this morning. The Lord has drawn me here. As we've been worshiping, you talk about this gospel. You know what, I, I think I do believe. We would love to talk to you more about that, what that means. But if you're a believer here, and what I've said has pierced your heart, and you said, there is an apathy growing inside of me, Pastor. My prayer is that you would see that the Jesus who loves you, who died for you, does not condemn you, but looks at you and says, come, come. I know you've been struggling. I know you've been worried. I know you felt like, like something is just really dry these days. I don't, I don't know what to do is your cry to me every time we pray. And he says, come, I'll show you. Come be with me. That's why we're in this gospel, so you can see who Jesus actually is. See how he walks, how he talks, and how he calls you to come to him. As we pray, I pray that you might hear his voice this morning. Would you pray with me? King of kings, this morning we pray grateful. Your word says in Philippians 2 that you emptied yourself and became human for us. You are Jesus, our Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, and we are just filled with wonder at the lengths you went to save us, to be with us. Thank you. Thank you for this family you've created, for the people you've brought together, the people you've made from all kinds of different people, people of faith, not, not, not the right pedigree, not the people who do all the right things, but people who believe in you. And so as we leave this morning, Lord, I pray that you would shake us out of our apathy and stir in our hearts the joy and wonder that the Magi must have felt falling face down before you. Remind us of the joy of salvation. Draw us closer to you, not by condemnation, but by love and grace. Grow us in the gospel as we depend on you and as we are changed by your love. And Lord, this morning I also pray for those who don't know you, that you might draw them in. Those who might be actively at war against you, would you, would you humble them like you humbled us? Would you save them like you saved us? Lord, you made them and you loved them more, more than they could ever imagine. And I just pray that you would, by your spirit, break through the darkness and show them that light. We love you. Would you remind us how much you love us? Teach us to depend on and grow in your love. You are our king. Amen and amen.